0: Hello and welcome to the St. Andrew's Society of Los Angeles podcast. Each episode will bring you the latest news from the St. Andrew's Society of Los Angeles, as well as fascinating interviews with entertainment personalities, government leaders and community advocates. St. Andrew's Society of Los Angeles, where Scotland meets the City of Angels. Let's get started. welcome to another great episode of the St. Andrew Society of Los Angeles' podcast. I'm your host, Joanna Lewis, and today we have got one for you intellectuals I'm very excited about this particular show. First, I'd love to introduce you to our guest moderator and co-host, Mr. George Mitchell. George Mitchell has been with the St. Andrew Society of Los Angeles since the 1970s. He currently serves as vice president of operations and has played an integral part in preparations for some of the society's notable events and even designed the society's tartan. After serving 40 years in law enforcement and for the federal government, George's time with the feds enabled him to travel throughout the world where he's met kings and queens, prime ministers, presidents, and a few rather dodgy dictators. Now, happily enclosed in his home in the Pacific Northwest, George is able to pursue his love of all things Scottish, not the least of which is history, bagpipes, and, of course, whiskey. George, thank Thank you so much.
1: Thank you so very much, Joanna. And I'm so excited to be here today, uh, continuing our series of uh, podcasts celebrating Scotland's history, heritage, and culture. Uh, This is going to be a great opportunity, and I'm looking forward to it.
0: And today, I'd love to introduce you to our guest, Dr. David Caldwell. Dr. David Caldwell received a degree in archaeology from Edinburgh University and spent decades working for the National Museums of Scotland. Dr. David directed excavations in Fenlogan Isla and the Center of the Lordship of the Isles and was a member of the international team that discovered and excavated the campsite of Alexander Selkirk, the inspiration for Robinson Crusoe. Dr. Caldwell has published over 100 articles and academic papers and has written seven books and counting, including the Lewis Chessman Unmasked. Among his many titles, he is a trustee of the Logan Trust and a director of the Fife Cultural Trust. Please welcome to our podcast, the president of the Society of Antiquaries of Scotland, Dr. David Caldwell.
2: Thank you very much for that introduction. It's a great pleasure to be here. I'm very, very pleased indeed, and I look forward to this uh, this podcast greatly.
0: Thanks so much for taking the time today. This is really exciting to have both of you guys on the show. I can't even tell you how much I love reading and law enforcement, and so this is this is kind of like I'm really jazzed about this particular episode, and I'm hoping that we get... A lot of great stories and juicy
1: information. (laughs) Well, excellent. Well, David, uh, many of our St. Andrews members know about the Society of Antiquaries for Scotland. In fact, a number of our members are actual fellows. Uh, But there may be people watching today who are not familiar with the society. And would you share some background on the history and mission of the society? And would you touch on some of the more famous fellows, such as Sir Walter Scott?
2: Yes, of course. I mean, it's uh, the Society of Antiquaries of Scotland is the oldest antiquarian society in Scotland. It was founded in 1780 by the Earl of Buchan, and over the years we've been uh, an independent academic society which has encouraged people to take an interest in the heritage, the archaeology. Um, the history of Scotland, not just professionals but just people who happen to have a passion and an interest in the past of Scotland all are welcome we 've published we've supported research we give out grants uh, we speak up for major issues when uh, governments are are looking for advice and we offer programs of um, of lectures and Over the years, we've had um, a number of very distinguished uh, fellows. You mentioned uh, Sir Walter Scott, great historian and novelist and poet. He was was one of our uh, early famous fellows. But there were a great number of other very considerable scholars in the 19th century. But I just want to focus on one man alone at the moment, Alexander Henry Rhind who um, died when he was uh, 30 years old in uh, 1863. Very short life, but a very influential life indeed, because he left his estate uh, to the society so that we could set up a series of lectures, um, series of six lectures, which are given by a notable scholar every year. And what strikes me as remarkable is that over the years, if you, if you look at uh, academic books in bookshops or libraries, and you flick through the pages, it's amazing how often you discover that they started off life as RIND lectures. And I think that's been a remarkable um, influence by RIND and the society.
1: Oh, that's fascinating. And what a great benefactor for the research and, and the society itself. So that's, that's amazing. Um, you know, the society has been in existence for almost two and a half centuries. Uh, what first inspired you to apply for fellowship? And I'm curious if there was a particular project or individual that piqued your interest and that's what moved you to, to join.
2: Well, as a, as a, as a, as a boy, I found myself getting more and more interested in in archaeology and local history. And uh, when other kids were out uh, doing uh, sensible things like playing football, um, I was, you know, sort of looking at uh, old ruins. And um, there was a a, a local museum which was founded by um, a man called Owen Kelly. Uh, He was a local businessman who put the money into the museum himself and set up a very good museum. And he very much encouraged and supported me when I was a teenager. And he was one of the people, I think, who encouraged me to think, yeah, I could make this into a profession. I could go and and do this as as a career. And part of that process, I think, when I was a student, was the realisation that I could become a fellow and get support uh, from uh, the wider fellowship.
1: Oh, Excellent. Um, as part of your um, membership, or as a, certainly as a senior fellow and now president, you've delivered lectures all over the world for the society, uh, covering a wide range of subjects, from David Ramsey, who served as the royal clockmaker, to King James, to uh, lectures on Scotland's significant historic contributions to culture, uh, to military items such as arms, armaments, and fortifications. That's a wide range of subjects. Is there a particular subject that especially captured your interest or is close to your heart? And could you expand on that?
2: Right. One of the great joys of being a curator in a museum is that you are able to dabble, that you're able to take an interest in a wide range of different things. I'm very mindful, George, of your own interests and background, and um, it's quite easy for me to point out to you that one of the early interests I took when I uh, joined the staff of the museum was in weapons, uh, particularly early firearms. It's just something about them that that fascinated me. And I soon discovered that the, the, the collection of the National Museum in Edinburgh had several Beautiful late 16th, early 17th century pistols, which mm. were made in centres like uh, Edinburgh and Dundee, uh, beautifully crafted and decorated with quite sophisticated firing mechanisms, an early type of lock called a uh, snap pants. And maybe that's the sort of thing you and I can speak about separately on another occasion. I <laughs> would enjoy that. <laughs> but very beautifully put together. And a remarkable thing about these pistols is that um, practically none of them were preserved in Scotland, although they were made by uh, Scottish gunsmiths. The reason we know about them and we have them is a very fine, uh, Scottish, because of a very fine Scottish scholar called Charles Whitemaw, who found a number of these pistols in royal and princely collections across Europe. Uh, places like uh, Paris, um, Leningrad, St. Petersburg, um, Dresden, Spain, Italy, um, and uh, right through Scandinavia, where these pistols had been acquired by princes and kings and been very much appreciated and admired. And in the course of the 20th century, some of them have indeed come back to Scotland. And I think they're, they're a remarkable insight into the, the craftsmanship that uh, Scots could produce in the years immediately before um, we entered this new phase of our, our life and became part of our of, um, of, of, a, of a joint kingdom along with uh, with uh, people in England and Ireland and Wales and I think one of the insights uh, uh, which I've had about them is that, um, they play very much, if you like, to a sort of Scottish characteristic. These pistols don't have um, safety locks on them. They don't have trigger guards. They have hooks so that you could slide them into your belt. And I have this image of our ancestors um, strutting down the centre of the high street uh, in Edinburgh. These pistols shoved down their belts. And pulling them on occasion, you know, rather like the image we've got of the American Wild West, thanks to Hollywood (laughs) uh, films. I think that was Scotland um, at the beginning of the 17th century. And a lot of these, uh, the gentlemen who had them, of course, went off to serve as mercenaries elsewhere. And in later generations, a lot of them did actually go to to America. So I think there's uh, a very interesting train there all of things to look at and certainly the pistols themselves I think are just absolutely wonderful. I think we do share a certain uh
1: uh commonality of rugged individualism. Um you know that was I think what helped build America and I think that's what put Scotland in in a center point in in uh in history. Uh you can see exactly what you're talking about as far as Uh, engineering and and manufacturing and just it always was um, uh, just so well done uh, and I think leagues ahead of of other nations. Um, I'm curious on some of these pistols, were you ever able to attach names or ownership to some of them?
2: Yes, right. Um, One of the finest pairs which we now have in Edinburgh which were acquired from um, uh, Russia after the First World War, um, appear to be made by uh, James Law in Dundee, who is one of the best makers. But they have markings on them which um, indicate that they were in the personal collection of Louis Thirteenth of France, who is quite a notable uh, collection of firearms. So that's the sort of quality um, of thing we're dealing with and a level of appreciation. Um, kings of France appreciated them. Sad to say, perhaps not all of us Scots even knew about them.
1: Yes, true. Sad, sad. I always think it adds something when you can put a, a name or, or ownership to uh, to an item or a, a piece of uh, um, artifact or whatever. Um, a little off topic, but I had a friend who collected antique arms. And he showed me a, uh, a set of pistols once. Uh, they were nineteenth century, but uh, you know, I picked them up and I got a kind of an unusual feeling from holding it. And I said, well, "What were these?" And he goes, "These rode in the charge of the Light Brigade." And he says, yeah. "I have the name of the officer who carried them." And I thought, "What a spectacular um, possession to have! What a piece of history that literally comes alive when you when you're in its presence." So. I just, that was exciting for me.
2: Things like that are are very important. And and if I may say, one of the things which uh, fascinates me after a lifetime of being a curator is that objects, you should be able to read objects like a book. It's not just about um, oh, it's a pistol and you can shoot people with it, or or it's a, it's a clock and it's got nice decoration on it. You should be able to look at an object and, in the same way as you look at a at an early document and get more and more information about a past. And I think that's one of the important things.
1: Yeah, it is. It just it really for me that's what does make history come alive, and um, I think you share obviously that passion too. Um, and hopefully we can inspire some others to do the same. It's not all dry. It's it's people who lived exciting lives before ours, and um, the things that they did and made are, are very important. Uh, I just, I can't even speak highly enough about it. Um, I'm curious, you know, obviously this has been a lifelong career and passion for you. When did you first know you wanted to become an archaeologist, and was, again, to kind of ask, is there a particular person or event that inspired you? Uh, Because it's an unusual field. Um, So I'm just curious.
2: Um, I first uh, discovered what archaeology was when I was about uh, 10 or 11. Um, I had a father who encouraged me uh, enormously. Um, and it, provided I was interested in something, he didn't worry about, oh, well, maybe that's a bit odd or maybe you should do something more obvious or sane. Um, so I expressed an interest in the past. He, he, he got me a book in archaeology. And all of a sudden I thought, yeah, this is me as an 11-year-old boy I wanted to go out and dig holes in the garden. And my father used to tease me as well. I mean, the, the house was next to the shore and there were bits of rotten wood and he would say things like, well, maybe that's part of uh, one of the ships of the Spanish Armada. Just, but, but nevertheless, it, <laughs> was, um, it was in the course of of, um, of of childhood or lives that wanted to be an archaeologist. And at first I thought that, well, this will be a good hobby. Uh, I'll become a an electrician or a, or a carpenter or something like that. But one day I had this this thought pass through my my head, and th- and that was that, well, somebody had to be an archaeologist, and it was going to be me. So yeah. it, it was that passion, I think, that uh, saw me through school and to university and, and into work, and absolutely no regrets about it, by the way. <laughs> That's excellent.
1: There obviously had to be some challenges along the way. I mean, there are probably limited... Positions in archaeology. Um, so while the passion's there, um, you know, you still need the paycheck. <laughs> so,
2: well, indeed, and there must be very lucky. I I suspect as a child I was quite a backward child. I think so. It was archaeology that that, that helped encourage me to 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 work and do things, and and perhaps at life I was so. Uh, stupid in a way that never occurred to me that I might not be able to do this I'm just lucky with my timing uh and my determination and um sometimes life's like that
1: that's perfect uh and sometimes when you don't know you can't do it then you just go right ahead and do it
2: do it exactly
1: yeah yes absolutely (laughs) thank you
0: so I've got a quick question for you I know that Hollywood tends to portray archaeology as both scholarly and pretty glamorous. And <laughs> we both know Hollywood depictions aren't totally accurate and they usually do contain a bit of truth woven into that story. So the question is pretty much what was what has been the most glamorous part of your career?
2: Right. Okay. Well, um a number of years ago, and you mentioned it, I think, at the beginning, um, I was involved in excavations on an island in the Pacific uh, looking for the campsite of uh, Alexander Selkirk, a Scottish castaway who was the uh, inspiration behind Robinson Crusoe. And it was all thanks to a good uh, Japanese friend um, who organised us going there, and along with some Chilean archaeologists, and there we were, hacking our way through the the the, um, the the forest of this island, climbing a hill, going to this uh, this fascinating sort of clearing in the forest, thinking, or oh, maybe this was the the, the place where Alexander Sapph had his campsite. And frankly, it was a really long shot. I mean, yes, of course we'd done research uh, before we went, but the chances of actually finding something like that. We're a bit like um, a needle in a finding a needle in a haystack, but nevertheless, um, we all got on very well with each other. The 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 Chileans were were really uh, really good people and very helpful, and we started off uh, digging, hoping that we'd find some evidence for the presence of the Scotsman at the very beginning of the 18th century, and um, we uh, dug there for. two weeks, I think, just finding uh, a, a Spanish colonial building of the uh, later 18th century. And it looked like we were running out of luck. But as archaeologists uh, often do in such circumstances, we um, we kept on digging. And we did find evidence for uh, the activities of a European who had been there. And uh, we did find a key artefact which I think allowed us to make the claim that we had found what we were looking for. Now, if you'd asked me before I went what that might be, I don't know what it would have said. I mean, why would they find a spot in or a set of bagpipes? Or if or we'd seen an inscription saying, Alexander Selk, I was here, or well, the cynic would have thought, yes, that will be right. But what we found was a tiny piece of metal, which I was able to identify as the tip from a pair of navigational dividers. Um, we had several other, others of the period uh, in the National Museum of Edinburgh. And the significance of that is that we know that Selker was the navigator on the ship that had taken him to the island. And when he was rescued, his rescuer specifically said that he had his navigational books and equipment with him. Now, in archaeological terms, I don't think you can do much better than that. And it was glamorous. It was fantastic. There we were, digging in a forest clearing, overlooking the Pacific, wonderful climate, hummingbirds flitting around, and going back home every evening to eat lobsters, basically all there was to eat. I could suffer that, though.
1: I was going to say that. I think some people would settle for that as a vacation and not a, uh, <laughs> yeah. not a dig. <laughs> What a spectacular find.
0: That sounds great. How long was, I know you said it had been a couple of weeks before you guys started really finding things. How long were you there in, in total?
2: We were there for about uh, four weeks. Um, it involved um, uh, a flight. Uh, about The island, uh, which is now called Robinson Cruise Island, is about 400 miles from the coast of, uh, of Chile. And it uh, involved flying there in a small five-seater plane And a rather dubious uh, voyage in a little open boat round the island to get there. But the locals, the Chileans, were absolutely wonderful to us. It was a great experience. I'm just curious uh,
1: obviously, even a small island is a lot of land to cover. Did you have an idea of where you thought it might be or or, uh, how you actually were able to um, limit the area you were going to dig in?
2: Right, okay. Um, my Japanese friend uh, Daisuke had already visited the island and he'd been shown a clearing in the forest by a local fisherman, um, which was identified as being the possible campsite. And Daisuke showed me the photograph um, a couple of years later and said, do you think that could be uh, Selkirk's uh, campsite? Now, one of the things I've learned in life is never say no until you absolutely have to. So I'm afraid uh, I saw him and said, "Oh well, I suppose it might be. not sure, but yeah, it might be." And on the basis of that, I took he went ahead and organized money and grants, and I find myself on a plane traveling to Chile thinking, "Oh dear, oh dear, this is a bit of a, of a wild goose chase, but we'll just have to do our best." And there really was very little um, uh, basis. For uh, for this, I mean, it's it's uh, it, you know, I'm the Chilean archaeologist. Talked amongst ourselves about what strategy we would uh, pursue if this turned out to be you know to get get something out of the project. But in fact, you know, we, we genuinely do feel that we, we got what we're looking for. Incredibly so.
1: Oh, that's a great story. That's a great story. Um, one of your passions, the Lewis Chessman is perhaps the most famous chess set in the world uh, and for those who don't know what it is they were discovered on the hebridean island of lewis in 1831. Uh, they're individually hand carved from walrus ivory totaling about 93 pieces and they became prominent in popular culture uh, when they appeared in the first harry potter movie and uh, in the film harry potter and the philosopher's stone or sorcerer's stone for the american release Um, the Lewis Chessmen are portrayed as pieces that appear to come to life as the match is played. Uh, They have detailed facial expressions. Some are whimsical, some are comical, some appear moody. Uh, You reveal in your book, The Lewis Chessmen Unmasked, some intriguing aspects about them. Can you share with us one startling discovery you made? Right,
2: okay. Um, If it's just one... I think the or as many as you'd like. <laughs> well, overall, overall, I think uh, the most important thing I think that uh, that we established is that the Lewis chessmen belong in Lewis. Okay, now that may sound a surprising thing to say, but let me explain that when they were found, um, scholars recognised that these were beautiful works of art. Uh, dating to the 12th century, were very finely crafted and they thought, ah, how come such fine works of art have been found somewhere like Lewis, which is so remote and uninteresting They didn't say where they walked from, but the way, that's another story, but it's far away from London anyway, that's for sure. Um, So there must have been some dreadful mistake as to why they ended up in Lewis. They obviously don't relate to Lewis, but it rains with days, but it rains a lot of the time. So the only reasonable explanation is that they belonged to a merchant. They were taken by a merchant somewhere much more interesting so they could be sold. And they ended up in a beach in Lewis by mistake. That's that's the best explanation, that you should really have gone to London or Dublin or somewhere like that. And not only was that a rather wicked, in a way, idea to come up with, the uh, uh, the fact that that idea stuck in people's minds meant that people forgot to ask other questions about them. If they were a merchant's hoard, it meant that they were all brand new and they all belonged together. It meant they didn't belong in Lewis, and straight off you're then preventing people from thinking, "Well, wasn't somebody in Lewis who might have owned them? Maybe they they, they 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 don't all they're not all the same date." And that's what I like to think that we achieved was was the uh, a sort of breakthrough in our ability to look at them in a different way and ask new questions. I know
1: that some of the pieces are in various museums. Uh, I think you take pride in the fact that uh, the ones in Scotland are of particular note. Could you go into that?
2: Yeah, the, the well, 11 of them are in uh, the National Museum of Edinburgh and the other um, 82, if my arithmetic is right, are in the British Museum, okay? Um, and. Um, by the way, the British Museum were, were wonderful, very generous in, in encouraging uh, the research that uh, we undertook. And over the years, um, both they and a museum in Edinburgh um, have um, allowed them to travel elsewhere. In fact, one of the visits I made to Los Angeles several years ago was to take some of the Lewis Chessmen over for an exhibition. don't know if any of you remember that. but. Um, the chessmen, um, you mentioned uh, a few minutes ago about the expressions on the faces. And that's one of the key things is the faces. And it's something that, that I, that always drew me in my time in the museum, a, a feeling that perhaps the faces had something to say. And after a while, I reasoned that if the chessmen were made by different craftsmen, it might be the faces that would give us some indication of this, because artists and cartoonists tend to give their faces similar characteristics. So, um, I my colleague, uh, Mark Hall, Watson Perth Museum, we got a very good forensic archaeologist involved in the project, um, Caroline Wilkinson, and we invited her to do Uh, studies of the faces, the shape and the form of the eyes, the nose, the relationships to each other. And on that basis, we've been able to to come up with uh, a picture that perhaps most of the chessmen were carved by five different craftsmen. And I think that's uh, a very interesting insight into into how this, the, this group were, were put together. And the fact that we were also able to identify that there were one or two, let's say, unusual or odd pieces in the hoard, which we think are probably replacements for pieces which have been lost or broken. And all that helps confirm the picture we have that actually they belong to somebody local. And indeed, we've got suggestions as to who they might belong to, um, which perhaps other people haven't noticed in the past.
1: Ah, oh, that's fascinating. Um, yes. Yeah, it's it's interesting. I mean, some of the some of the pieces are seated, some are standing, some are armed. Um, so it just it's it's a very interesting range of of uh, depictions for what we have are pretty standard chess pieces, and these were obviously interestingly carved. Uh, I just, uh, uh, I I definitely piqued my interest. I'm going to have to get into this a little bit more (laughs) and break down and buy your book.
2: (laughs) Find it. I don't get any fun as well as
1: meeting. (laughs) No, it it sounds fascinating. Um, I I was curious, you know, a lot of people uh, understand or are aware that Scotland is a, a beautiful country. It's been listed a number of times as the most beautiful country in the world but a lot of people don't realize that Scotland can be a rather uh, mystical or mysterious place. There are a number of stories involving ghosts, hauntings, other ethereal occurrences that are woven through the culture. Uh, With uh, Samhain on our doorstep, uh, I'm wondering if you might be able to share some stories of Scotland's haunted history.
2: Right, yes. Well, we certainly do have, like lots of other countries, a rich tradition of, um, about supernatural happenings. The sort of stories I like are, um, one which I know of from the island of Isla, and it occurs elsewhere in Scotland, which is about the piper and his dog, um, disappearing into, into a cave on the north coast of Isla, and the people hear him, you know, going into the back of the cave with his dog, and the bagpipes keep playing, and they keep playing, and eventually there's no sound, and, he, he, and the piper uh, doesn't reappear. But uh, several days or weeks later, a very big draggled dog comes out from another cave several miles away, looking very much the worse for wear. And I just love stories like that. And I, and I think, in a way, it's a it's a fairly uh, typical uh, Scottish-type story. Um, yeah, there are stories of people being scared by ghosts, uh, you know, where people were murdered and so on. But one of the other things which, um, perhaps if I'd been in, in, in the museum for any longer, I would love to explore a bit more, was the whole um, business of witchcraft, because for all we Scots pride ourselves on our scholarly tradition and the way that we um, we, 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 we brought uh, renaissance-type um, uh, learning. So I'm losing vocabulary in old age. Perhaps you, you know the word I'm trying to get here. <laughs> uh, oh, come to it. Uh, learning and erudition and culture to other parts of the world. Uh, despite that um we uh did go through a phase like a lot of other european countries of believing in witchcraft and doing lots of uh horrid things to mostly poor women in the, the late uh, 16th and 17th century james VI uh, james the First of england um was 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 responsible ultimately for some of this believing that there were witches who had tried to sink the boat that he came back from Denmark in 1591 with his, uh, with his new queen. And that's, uh, that's something, it's a bit of an indictment on our culture. It demands uh, more expo- more exploration, I think, uh, that we, we weren't always doing good things or memorable things. <laughs> I appreciate the that. Sir. By the way, the Enlightenment—that was the one that couldn't ah, <laughs> Trust me. I
1: believe me. There, I know the words out there sometimes, and it uh, give me a moment. I'll find it. But uh, uh, and certainly, you know, the United States had its uh, uh, experience with uh, with witch trials and such, and not our finest moment. So uh, I understand. Again, yeah, a, a group of people that should have been educated and, and uh, enlightened, and. Fell into this uh, almost a group panic, uh, so it's 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 an interesting bit of history that that I've looked into just a little bit, and I want to get into that some more. That's the nice thing about being retired; you do have the option of uh, exploring different things at your own pace. Um, I'm curious because obviously you are uh, you're very Scottish, and uh, I'm wondering if your heritage. Has contributed to your passion for your field, and if it has, exactly how?
2: Right, that's a very interesting question. Yes, I was brought up in uh, Scotland. Uh, I've never had any doubt that I was Scottish, and I spent uh, the whole of my life promoting uh, Scottish heritage and culture. But in a funny sort of way, in my old age now, I'm beginning to take more and more interest um, in the whole business of Scottish identity and what it is. And some of the reason for that, I might say, is meeting and talking to people like you, um, not just in Los Angeles, but elsewhere in North America. We've had a fair amount of involvement with other people with Scottish roots and Australia and New Zealand as well. And it it fascinates me um, what people recognise about the past or, or what they want to know or how they want to see it. And we scots, because we 're all scots that 's why we 're talking to each other at the moment, um, we have an incredible uh, brand, an incredible strong image, bagpipes, whiskey, tartan, military history, all sorts of things. but I, I want now to get uh, to explore that a bit more and get a better understanding of it and not take take it uh, for granted. Um, you know, there's all sorts of other things happening in the world out there, you know, movements for changes in countries and government and all the rest of it. Um, and, you know, no desire to be drawn into politics in, in any way. But clearly, uh, if you're going to be Scottish, you want to be Scottish, it's important that you have some understanding, or it is to me anyway, more of an understanding of what it's about. That's what I want to do and tell other people about it.
1: Uh, I couldn't agree more. I, I think you need to know a little bit about your past to help you get to your future. You've been involved in recent excavations, uh, in Finla- Finlagen and uh, which was the home of the McDonald's, but it was more than that. And uh, I really am interested in hearing what these excavations, uh, what you were able to uh, determine or or um, learn from these uh Extensive excavations.
2: Right, okay. Um, we excavated at Finlagen, it, which, is, which is essentially two islands in an inland loch on the beautiful island of, of Isla. And we excavated over a period of time uh, for uh, seven or eight years in a row, collecting a vast amount of archaeological and historical data, uh, some of which I'm, I'm still processing literally thousands of bits of information and finds. And Finlagan was, um, for some of its history, was not part of Scotland. Uh, the Western Isles only became part of Scotland as we understand it now in, in 1266. Before that, the Western Isles were a separate kingdom of the Isles, and then in medieval period, the MacDonalds as the successors to the kings of the Isles um, Lords of the Isles were really seen in the Gaelic and Irish world as as, as 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 an independent kingdom. In many ways, they were potentially rivals of the Stuarts uh, for power in Scotland. Sometimes playing a dangerous uh, political game, um, you know, seeing the you know pitting the English uh, against the Scots uh, for their own uh, benefit, and their, uh their heritage, their culture, the society was a particular um, uh, one which was markedly different from what was happening elsewhere in Europe. It was a militarized society. It was one which didn't have um, urban centers. It was one where they relied on um, sea power and um, um, raiding and different form of art. Now, overall, this was a form of culture and society, which in various ways was despised and rejected by uh, power centres, powerful people in London and Edinburgh. And eventually the the society, the way of life that this represented was put down and there were even uh, attempts to suppress the language uh, Gaelic. But what's fascinating in many ways is that and, and we were talking about it a few minutes ago Scottish identity, the identity we now have of ourselves as Scots people, with our dress, with our music, with our whiskey, with our martial tradition, was exactly the the tradition, the way of life that was developed in the Western Isles, which we tried to suppress, which we have now adopted as this international image of Scottishness, and I find that uh, a fascinating. Uh, Picture and I hope very much our excavations will help us to explain why and how that happened.
1: It's fascinating. I, please correct me if I'm wrong. I understand that obviously there were um, a number of Scandinavian visitors that came to northern parts of Scotland and I'm just curious how those individuals, you know, that stayed intermingled or how that affected the culture and the development in those different areas?
2: Very considerably. Uh, a lot of the, uh, the Western Isles of Scotland, uh, at first sight, the place names look as if they're Gaelic. But when you, you dig a wee bit uh, underneath the surface of them, you discover that, in fact, uh, the Scandinavian names, which had been uh, Gaelicised at a later period, because there was quite a, a considerable um, influx of Scandinavian uh, people in the ninth and later centuries into Scotland, into the west of Scotland. And in many ways, the Kingdom of the Isles was a, was a Scandinavian uh, kingdom. Uh, they spoke uh, a, a Norse language. And a lot of the families which uh, we now think of as being Gaelic, who reinvented themselves as being Gaelic and Irish in the, in the Middle Ages, like the Macdonalds, the Macleods, the McAllister's, the, the Macaulay's, all sorts of families that that well, a lot of these people really had Viking blood flowing uh, through their veins, and uh, we need to show more recognition of that. It seems to me.
1: Ah, uh, that's that is interesting, and it's uh, it, it always has fascinated me that um, uh, how the different cultures will will meld. Um, you know the different uh, some were raiders, some were uh, adventurers, some just came to colonize, but. Uh, and all of a sudden they had this impact on the people who were currently living there and how those cultures developed as kind of a joint one. And as you said, then they kind of re uh, imagine themselves um, down the road as, as being something more uh, in line with one particular country or another. So it's just, it, it really, that's it's just a fascinating, fascinating topic. Um, I know that you were born, as we discussed in Ardrossan and Ayrshire, is that correct? Yes, indeed. Yeah, and I hope I pronounced that correctly. You did indeed. Um, oh, oh good. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I got to work on my Gallic. Uh, uh, but growing up around there, I understand there was a castle and some other historical sites. And I think we touched a little bit on this earlier. But uh, did that uh, did that launch your passion for archaeology? And and could you share some personal insights or little known aspects? of Ardrossan and Ayrshire, beautiful right,
2: area. Okay. It is indeed. It's a, it's a small uh, seaside town on the coast of Ayrshire, looking out of, to the island of Arran and Kintyre and the Western Isles. And I was brought up, uh, I mean, happy memories of an idyllic uh, childhood, swimming in the sea and going and examining the ruined castle. Which was in the centre of town, and I spent a lot of time as a child with a measuring tape and with uh, with a, a kid's camera, uh, studying this castle and trying to understand it. And I was curried, I was encouraged by my father to do this sort of thing. And I mentioned Owen Kelly, the uh, the founder of the local museum in Kaliszne. I was invited to give a talk on it. And um, as a student, I presented my first. Um, paper for publication to the Society of Antiquaries on Ardrossan Castle. And a very distinguished architectural historian, John Dunbar, was invited to actually review my paper. And he came all the way down to Ardrossan to go over the castle with me. And he was obviously very interested in what I'd done and recommended that the paper uh, should be published. And John, who sadly passed away at a very great age just a couple of years ago. He was a man who, because I published that paper and because he knew who I was, recommended that I get a job in the museum. So that's the sort of, some of the serendipity that happened in my life. You know, things moved in the right direction and I was very lucky. But I still have a very um, very keen interest in Ardrossan Castle and uh, I'm involved with a local heritage group there and in in helping them to to make it better known and more accessible to the public. Ah, it's excellent.
0: So I've got a question for you. Is there a topic or a place that's kind of considered like the hot topic now in archaeology? And if there is, where is that and and what would it be?
2: Right. Well, one of the the, the things which I think is uh, really good news uh, for for you and your, your members is that there isn't one, okay? There's lots and lots and lots. And whether you're a total amateur, uh, totally ignorant, whether you're a very considerable scholar, there is room for lots and lots of people, for everybody to get involved. And let me say that um, some of the best insights I've had on um, things like the Lewis Chessman have been when I've, I've gone somewhere to give a lecture and I've thought that I know all, oh, I've done all this research as somebody in the audience, some type of school kid, I've stuck their hand up and said, yes, but what about, and I thought, oh, I never thought of that, that's a brilliant question. And that's often the way of these things, you know to develop a passion and interest. Look, if I was um, if I was a prehistorian, I'd be telling you about the the wonderful excavations that were are taking place uh, up in Orkney at the moment, which are, are redefining everything we know about the Stone Age in Britain and Europe. Or I could point out that we've got borrowed Heritage sites at uh, the island of St Kilda, well off the west coast of Scotland, or the or the Roman Wall, which uh, has got uh, Roman scholars really excited. But and I'm not just saying this because it's you, for me personally, I think where a lot of it's at at the moment, where a lot of the great interest in, is in what we over here um, call the, the Scottish uh, diaspora. This understanding that there may only be about $500 living in Scotland who claim to be Scottish because we live in Scotland but there's an incredible amount of other people. I think one of the best figures is 30 million elsewhere in the world who are passionately interested in, in Scotland and rightfully regard themselves as Scottish and have a, an incredible wealth of knowledge about our past, whether in Scotland itself or overseas, and whole areas of interest which um, are influencing the way we think uh, back here in Scotland. And I think that's fantastic. I think that's really good. And um, I'm very pleased to, to, to say that the Society of Antiquaries of Scotland are, are moving perhaps very slowly in the direction of encouraging more and more of this interest and bringing together um, interests and studies and research uh, in places like uh, in the United States. I think that's where a lot of it is. And I suspect we will find that there are whole areas of knowledge and interest that, that, uh, that we should be taking a lot more seriously uh, because of you, people. Ah.
1: We've touched briefly on uh, the Society of Antiquaries. Um, I'm, I'm just curious, to become a fellow, one needs to show a, a commitment, a passion for both Scotland's history and future. Um, and to have two fellows provide a letter of recommendation, what are you looking for in future members of the society?
2: Um, just um, a passion and an interest in uh, Scottish um, history and archaeology one of the uh, i'm rather proud of the of the, the fact that we call ourselves a society of antiquaries we 're a society we're not an institution a society implies what we're doing now, that we can actually speak in a friendly, interesting way with each other. The other thing, the word um, antiquary, which has often in the past seemed very old fashioned. Well, for me, I think it it means that we are not just an archeologist or a herald or a numismatist, but we're people who can recognize that. We can take a, a whole wide sweep of interest Uh, whether we're experts in it or not, those are important aspects of it. It's not just about uh, being uh, professional, it's about being amateurs, and we welcome um, applications for fellowship uh, from new people. Uh, You've pointed out that uh, one of our requirements is that we, we have people recommended for fellowship and then seconded by another name. But we... Also, we have people standing by who are prepared to to put the name to worthwhile uh, requests. Um, And in fact, I mean, I hope very much that we will see uh, other nuclei of uh, people and fellows in other parts of the world, including Los Angeles, where um, it will not be a problem. I mean, obviously, any, any society, we've got to have the capability of making sure that we're not using some language from your past infiltrated by some group which does not have our interests at heart but by and large we're, we're an open and welcoming society and uh, I suspect that uh, that if you're a member of the St Andrew Society of uh, Los Angeles you're probably well in the way to being appropriate, uh, uh, an appropriate person to be one of our fellows. Oh, That's excellent. I I, uh, I know that uh,
1: when our president, Kimberly Bradford, joined, um, she spoke to a number of people, and I think maybe to, uh, how do I want to put it, uh, put aside some people's concerns, I think maybe some people might feel that, oh, this is a very intellectual society, and it is, but that I'm not um, that skilled, or I don't have this, uh, you know, uh, degree or whatever. So I wouldn't be a good member. And Kimberly brought back the fact that no, it's, it's the passion, it's the interest. And just what you said that you welcome people who are amateurs or enthusiasts, uh, because all are welcome. And then everybody contributes to the society in one way or another. So I'm, I'm hoping that uh, this will help get the word out about the society in our area. And uh, some of our members may approach uh, uh, people on the on the board or in the society who are already members of the, the uh, Society Antiquaries and ask about uh, what it takes to become a member. So I'm, I'm looking forward to a positive reaction for that. You what know, you've, and, and we're happy to uh, happy to be part of that. I am a member. I'm a fellow, and uh, very very pleased to be one. And and uh, just look through some of the, the paperwork and the books that are available and, and the lectures that are offered. It's just, uh, it's really uh, an exceptional organization that does a lot of great work. Um, you've served as president for two consecutive terms, and my hat's off to you, uh, having been a vice president for several terms. Uh, it's a lot of work, and uh, uh, but, but well worth it. Um, your current Term comes to close next month. If I'm correct, yeah. yeah. So you've you've had six years of leadership in the society. What do you list as your most significant accomplishment?
2: Right, um, I list as my most significant uh, accomplishment letting the, the very good staff members and fellow members of council get on with doing what they do best. And what that is, I think over the last six years is making the society and all that we do and think much more accessible, uh, making uh, much of what we do available online, uh, including our lectures, um, making our publications uh, open access, and opening up um, the society to fellows uh, elsewhere in the world. Um, so it's been a great pleasure to, and uh, privilege to have this opportunity uh, to speak to your members in this way. Um, one regret, if you like, is that um, I, I thought uh, I was well in the way to uh, helping the society um, improve... Uh, or uh, establish uh, new accommodation in Edinburgh. Uh, Lack of accommodation has been one of our our, our problems. We haven't had decent accommodation for our staff. We've been very fortunate in having the support of the national museums in giving us uh, space in their premises. But uh, we were very much hoping to be able to develop our own heritage hub, so that when people like you and from elsewhere came to Edinburgh, you would have a place to go to meet other people, find out what's happening, be able to suck in so much of what we were doing. And um, it may still be the case that I can make a significant announcement about progress in this at our our anniversary meeting in a month's time. But inevitably, COVID-19, which you no doubt heard about, has set back some of our plans just a bit. But I, I hope very much that as a society, we're very much on the um, on the verge of, um, as it were, uh, going from being um, a fuddy-duddy, is that a word you guys know in America? Being a fuddy-duddy, um, old-fashioned organisation, very wealthy one, to one which is truly global and all-embracing. I think that is very important in this day and age. So... Keep your fingers crossed that that's what we can
1: achieve. Oh, well, fingers crossed for you, sir. Yeah. Um, I'm curious, as you leave your position as president, is there something that you see in the future for you?
2: For me? Right, OK. Well, um, I've still very much um, got to produce the final report on the excavations at Finn Lagan. Um, it's a monumental task. It's, a, it's going to be a 200,000-word uh, publication. I'm, I'm doing a lot of the work myself, but I'm one of these people um, I can't just settle down in life and do one thing. I've always got to do more than one. And one, one thing that might interest you, and again you may have views on it, is that I, I'm working with two other younger scholars to produce a new account, detailed analysis of the Battle of Pinky. The last uh, battle between the Scots and England as individual as as separate kingdoms um, in 1547. And I think there's a lot of archaeological and historical and topographical information all to be brought together. And I love that that antiquarian approach of not just being stuck with a bunch of documents or a a bunch of cannonballs, but you can actually mix the the two and come up with a a new and better um, uh, picture. And I'm still involved in 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 lots of other things um other bodies i don't know about you but um in my line of work i thought i was retiring from the national museums um eight years ago now and i thought i I was walking out the door and that was it but of course so many of the emails and contacts have followed me and i haven't quite yet got to the stage of ignoring them or telling people no i'm sorry that was another age forget it (laughs)
1: <laughs> yeah, sometimes it's hard to say no, especially with the passion. One of the things I wanted to ask you before we close I know that um, the uh, your annual general meeting is coming up uh, next month. And one of the things that caught my eye was uh, uh, I believe it closed in June, but you were having a design contest for a society tartan. And as I was involved in that for the St. Andrews Society, uh, I, obviously you can't give away any secrets, but. Uh, I'm I'm really excited to see uh, what exactly that will be. Um, I mean, I assume that the the submissions have come in and decisions have been made, and you're ready to announce when the uh, when the. I'm telling uh, you nothing.
2: Telling I know you nothing. You, you will find. But however, we were very pleased. Um, we had um, we had some real quality submissions. Um, we, were, we were spoilt for choice, as it were, but we nevertheless managed to pick a clear winner, which oh. I'm very happy with. And I hope very much that you folks uh, like it when you, you find out about it in a month's time.
1: Ah, I'm looking forward to that. Uh, it's going to be a long month waiting to see what exactly <laughs> you decided. But uh, I guess before we close, is there anything that you wanted to add that we didn't, uh, we didn't cover or, or something you feel we might... Uh, Touch on before we uh, conclude?
2: No, I don't, uh, not that I can immediately think of. Um, But I hope very much that uh, we get over our uh, present uh, restrictions and travel and that. that uh we see much more uh of each other uh in the future i'd love to come back to california and i hope very much that you guys get over to to scotland and um you know in principle uh we are open to 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 doing more you know speaking to you more in the future if that uh helps encourage everything that we're all passionate about i think that would be excellent
1: yes we're all looking forward to uh being able to travel again and, and uh, I know so many people have had to put their plans to, to visit Scotland on hold and uh, so when the, when the restrictions are lifted uh, I fear it may be like the dam bursting so you, you all ought to prepare yourselves for a, an onslaught but uh, yeah we're looking forward to it and we hope we see you in California again that would be wonderful.
0: Well, thank you both so much for taking the time out today to speak to the St. Andrew Society of Los Angeles' podcast. It has been an absolute pleasure, completely eye-opening. Um, Dr. Caldwell, is there a website or anything that people could go to to, to get more information?
2: The, the Society of Antiquities website, www.socant.com. S C O T or one word dot org uh, will will have a lot of the information that people uh, need, and uh, they can write it, email them, yeah. and there'll be information there on applying to become fellows.
0: Fantastic!
1: Certainly, thank everybody for uh, for joining us, and, and David, it's been an absolute pleasure. I hope we have an opportunity to speak again in the future. It's been
2: I hope so, quite, too. I've enjoyed it too.
1: quite enjoyable and, uh, you know, all the best in your future endeavors.
2: You too.
0: Again, thank okay. you so much. And thank you out there for listening and watching the St. Andrew Society of Los Angeles podcast. We will see you on the next episode. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of the St. Andrews Society of Los Angeles podcast. For more information on the St. Andrews Society of Los Angeles, visit www.standrewsla.org. And don't forget to like our Facebook page, Instagram, and YouTube channels as well. Have a great week and we'll see you next episode.